1989, 11-year-old Jacob Waterling was abducted while bicycling home from a convenience store with friends after dark in St. Joseph, Minnesota, an abduction that would remain a mystery for nearly 27 years. I'm Jelsey May, and this is Exhibit May. My favorite game is Clue. My favorite thing to do most is watch football. My favorite sport is football. And my favorite TV show is a Cosby show. My f- what I want to be when I grow up is a football player. My favorite hobby is collecting football cards. October 22, 1989 was a warm Sunday in the small town of St. Joseph, Minnesota, with high temperatures reaching the 70s. Children played outside, rode their bikes, roasted hot dogs over bonfires, and enjoyed what felt like one of those long, glorious late summer days. That day, 11-year-old Jacob Wetterling and his father Jerry set out for a morning of fishing. Upon their return, the Wetterlings gathered around the television to watch the Minnesota Vikings face off against the Detroit Lions. As the day drew to a close, they concluded their activities with a session of indoor ice skating. That evening, Jerry, 39, and his wife Patty, 41, went to a gathering at a friend's house about a 25-minute drive away. They left their children Jacob and his younger siblings Trevor, 10, and Carmen, 8, at home while their eldest child Amy was at a friend's house. They were also joined by Jacob's best friend Aaron Larson who came over for a sleepover. The kids enjoyed pizza for dinner, hung out for a while, and later decided to rent a movie from a nearby store called Tom Thumb. They picked the movie Major League, an American sports comedy film rated R. Being underage, they called their 14-year-old neighbor, Rochelle Jerzak, and asked her to call the store for them. They wanted me to call Tom Thumb to get them to rent a movie that was R, because <laughs> they thought maybe my voice sounded older. Yeah, I, um, I don't know, that kind of stuff makes me nervous, like I'm going to get busted. I mean, thinking about it now, like what would the worker at Tom Thumb do? But nonetheless, that was my mode of thinking at the time. Rochelle declined to assist, so the boys chose a different movie and contacted their parents for permission to head to the store. When their mom, Patty, answered the phone, she promptly refused, citing that the boys had never gone alone despite it being just a mile away. Trevor called and asked if they could ride their bikes to the store and rent a video, and um, I said no. Um, They hadn't really done that before. It's a mile just down the hill but you know that's cornfield it's dark there's nothing in between um they'd never done it at night unhappy with her response trevor requested to speak with their dad when jerry spoke to the boys he also expressed concerns about the dark bike ride to the store and the possibility of getting hit by a car my whole concern was a car hitting him you know and so being seen at dark that was my own concern Trevor assured his dad that they would bring a flashlight and Jacob would wear a reflective vest. After a bit of persuasion, Jerry finally gave in. 
As the boys got ready to depart, Jacob put on an orange reflective vest over his red hockey jacket while their neighbor Rochelle came over to watch their little sister Carmen. I, I mean, I remember them putting on this reflective vest and then at least one or maybe both of the other boys had flashlights. And then that was kind of it. Around 8.30 p.m., the boys finally set out with Jacob and Trevor on bikes while Aaron rode a scooter. The Tom Thumb store was about a 15-minute bike ride into town up a dead-end country road from the cul-de-sac where the Wetterlings lived. Along the way, there were mostly just cornfields and woods with a few blocks of houses closer to town. While biking up the road, the boys passed a lengthy gravel driveway where they heard an odd rustling sound in the cornfields. Not thinking anything of it, they continued to the store. Upon reaching the Tom Thumb, they rented the movie The Naked Gun, purchased snacks, and began their journey home. They rode past a few blocks of houses as the town lights gradually faded away. Riding on through dark roads without streetlights, not even the moon was visible. The only light guiding their way was from Trevor's flashlight. As they neared the long gravel driveway, the same spot where they had heard the rustling earlier, a man dressed in all black with a dark mask suddenly emerged onto the road and walked towards them. And then he told us he had a gun and he told us to turn around and go over into this ditch and put our bikes in there and lay down. I thought it was some kid pulling a prank on us or something. The man then instructed Trevor to turn off his flashlight and asked his age. 10, Trevor replied. The man then ordered him to run as fast as he could into the woods without looking back, warning that he would shoot if he did. Then the man turned to Aaron and asked him his age. 11, Aaron said. Then he looked at me and then he grabbed Jacob and he told me to run as fast as I could in the woods or he'd shoot. Now, with Jacob and the man alone, he grabbed Jacob and once more asked the boy how old he was. 11, Jacob said. As the other two boys ran far enough, they turned around, but the man and Jacob had vanished. When you ran, did you look back? Yeah, once we got way down there. What did you see? Nothing. He wasn't there anymore. It was now 9.20 p.m. Rochelle was watching TV with Jacob's younger sister at the house when Trevor and his friend Aaron burst in screaming. Rochelle, someone took Jacob. Someone took Jacob. There was a man with a gun and he took Jacob. And I was like, what? You know, because it, it was so out of the realm of anything I could have ever imagined that it took me a minute to really understand it. Once she realized her urgency, she panically called her dad, Merle, who promptly came over, called Jerry and Patty, and instructed them to come home because Jacob was missing. Jerry took it, and it was Rochelle's dad, Merle, um, telling us that. He asked for me. He didn't, he didn't want to tell you. He asked for me, said, um, come straight home. Um, Aaron and Trevor came back, but Jacob didn't come back. And he'd come straight home and he would call 911. After hanging up at 9.32 p.m., Merle dialed 911, approximately 15 minutes since Jacob had been abducted. 911 emergency. 
This is Merlin Jerzak calling from St. Joe. I'm right now next door at my neighbor's, the Jerry Wetterling family. Some of their boys went down to Tom Thumb to pick up a movie, and on their way back, someone stopped them. We believe that they have one of the boys because the, one of the boys did not come back with them. And they don't know where their other friend is at. They don't know where their brother and friend is at. I think that maybe my best bet is to let Trevor get on the phone and he can describe to you uh, okay. what he saw and this type of thing. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, I'll put Trevor on. Okay. And he can you can he can answer your question. We've got him pretty well calmed down here. So, Trevor, you're talking to the sheriff's office. I want you to give me anything you can you can recall about this male party that approached you guys. Well, he was he was like. Trevor informed 911 that an unknown man had emerged from the darkness and his face was covered by something that may have been black nylons. He added that the man sounded like he had a cold and they didn't see or hear a nearby car. Due to the darkness, that's all the description the boys could provide. We were driving home, absolutely confused what's going on it seemed like we were going so slow in my mind he was driving like 10 miles an hour and I'm like speed hurry up and he said I didn't he didn't want to get stopped by the police and I said well we'd have a police escort just drive we were near Clearwater so it was a good 20 25 minutes okay. and then I said something really mean it's like well who told him they could go to the store and Jerry said I did, so if you want to be mad at somebody, be mad at me. Bruce Bechtold, a rookie deputy, was a few miles away in his squad car when he received a call from the dispatcher reporting a missing child. It was over the squad radio. There was a call on the radio, what they called an abduction of a child. Well, you don't think that happens here. So my initial thought was somebody panicked. It's really not an abduction. Somebody kid ran away, somebody's playing a game. So I started going that way, and the more information the dispatcher gave, the more serious I realized it was, and that there was a gun involved, and then it became real. He promptly headed towards the Wetterlings home, and by 9.38 p.m. was the first to arrive at the scene. As other sheriffs began to arrive, Charlie Graft started questioning the boys, probing whether they were certain Jacob had been abducted and if they were concealing something. They sat down here at the table and, and they kept asking the boys, you know, first what happened and then they asked some questions like, are you sure you guys weren't, you know, playing with a gun? Jacob got hurt and you're afraid to tell. Or are you sure um, Jacob didn't just run away and you're, you know, trying to buy him some time till he gets where he's going or something and they're like no you know they were really really clear it was now 10 45 p.m and while the wetterlings were instructed to stay home in case a young boy returned investigators had fanned out into the woods with flashlights charlie said they were gonna comb the woods and he said um you know, it's not a bad thing. Maybe he's tied to a tree or something. We're hoping that we're going to find him, and then that's why we're searching. You know, he was trying to reassure. At the same time, volunteer firefighters were called to aid in the ground search while a helicopter conducted an aerial search with a spotlight from above. 
After an hour and a half, while those in the air found nothing, those on the ground made a discovery. Tire tracks and shoe prints were found in the gravel driveway across the street from the abduction site. While investigators were uncertain if this was relevant, Detective Steve Mund emphasized that it only made sense for the abductor to have access to a car as it was the only plausible theory. I mean, it's not like you're in the inner city with, you know, apartment buildings and something where you could take someone and be gone in five blocks and then have 5,000 places to hide. How could you get away from there with someone and not have a car, you know, connected to it? You're either going to have to be in a house that's right there or something like that, or how would that occur? I'm not sure. So, The winding gravel driveway opposite Jacob's abduction site led to a quaint white farmhouse with a clothesline, a chicken coop, and a grain silo. Inside was a 34-year-old man named Dan Rassier who was home alone that evening. At around 9 p.m., while sorting his record collection upstairs, Dan's dog's bark drew his attention to a small dark car with headlights coming down the driveway. Though unable to see the driver, Dan watched as a vehicle took a U-turn before disappearing towards the road. Not thinking much of it, he headed to bed. Around 10.45 p.m., Dan awoke to his dog barking once again. I remember waking to the dog, the dog keeps barking, and I look out one of the windows and I see, you know, all these flashlights. And I stepped out the door, and at that point I remember my heart rate going up and realizing I can't go up there. There, I, I can take care of maybe a couple of them, but not like 10 of them. And I just immediately called 911. They said a child was taken and... Uh, I go, oh, okay. So I went right up there. At that instant, the realization struck him that he might have witnessed the abduction when he observed the car driving away from his property. At 3 a.m., less than six hours since Jacob had been abducted, investigators made the decision to call off the search until daylight. And I remember asking, because we had turned the radio on and there was a report that this child was lost in the woods. And I called WJON and said, he wasn't lost, he was kidnapped. And they said, well, we can only report what the police are telling us. And so I remember asking Charlie Graft, the sheriff, um, would it hurt to get the right story out in the media? Well, wait a second. It was, nothing was done until Charlie said it was okay. And that was like 5 a.m. As a late evening merged into the early morning, a steady stream of officers flooded into town while search teams tirelessly combed the surrounding areas for any trace of the missing boy. By the end of the week, nearly 100 officers from across Minnesota were working on the case. Radio stations throughout Minnesota aired Jacob's favorite song, Listen, by Rad Grammar, along with a heartfelt message from his mom, Patty. I just want Jacob to know that this song is for him to hear. The heartbeat of humanity is beating for him. I know it will give him strength. And if there's an ounce of compassion in this man who is holding him, he will let him go safely. Listen, Jacob, can you hear our prayers? We love you. Flyers with a boy's photo were plastered across every available surface while people wore white ribbons pinned to their shirts symbolizing hope for Jacob's safe return. 
The circle which started where he was taken grew to cover all of Minnesota. Then it spread to include the whole Midwest, Canada, the entire United States, and finally, the entire world. It's a case that defied logic then and now. It is a crime that has both captivated and frustrated Minnesotans for the On the outskirts years. of his hometown of St. Joseph, a young boy's The most feared type of abduction, one by a complete stranger, no ransom note, no contact. What happened to Jacob Wetterling? Months and months passed with no answers, and Jacob's abduction remained a mystery for years. Until May 2014, when investigators confirmed they were reopening an investigation into a series of attempted and actual child molestations that occurred in the Painesville area in the two years preceding Jacob's abduction. On the chilly evening of January 1989 in Cold Spring, Minnesota, roughly nine months before Jacob's abduction, 12-year-old Jared Shirel went ice skating with a group of friends and stopped at a cafe to grab a chocolate malt afterward. As the other kids were picked up in cars, Jared and his best friend, Corey Eccleston, opted to walk. Jared asked Corey to accompany him home, but Corey declined, a choice he would later come to deeply regret. Around 9.30 p.m. during Jared's solo walk home, a man in a blue car pulled up beside him and asked for directions. As Jared began giving directions, the man exited the vehicle, grabbed him by the shoulders, and ordered him to get in, claiming he had a gun and wasn't afraid to use it. Once inside the car, the man instructed the boy to lay down in the back seat and cover his eyes with a stocking cap before driving off. A walkie-talkie type scanner was in the car allowing the man to listen to law enforcement dispatch, but he eventually turned it off. The man drove for 10 to 15 minutes, during which Jared tried to keep track of their route by counting left and right turns and noting when they crossed train tracks. Eventually, the man turned onto a gravel road and stopped at a remote location where Jared was assaulted inside the car. He then drove the boy back to Cold Spring and dropped him off two miles from his house, warning Jared to run and not look back or he would be shot. A threat eerily similar to those made by the masked man on the night Jacob Wetterling was abducted. Between the summer of 1986 and the spring of 1987, five teenage boys had been attacked, yet no arrests were made. Following months of research and interviews with several victims, investigators concluded that all five cases had such striking similarities that it was highly probable they were committed by the same individual responsible for Jacob's abduction, which took place just 40 minutes from the other crime scenes. In October 2015, Danny James Heinrich was publicly named as a person of interest in the disappearance of Jacob Wetterling. He had been previously questioned by the FBI in 1989 and questioned at least twice more in 1990 and had provided a DNA sample, but he was never formally charged and he was released. During that period, impressions of his shoes and car tires were also obtained, and they bore a visual resemblance to the tire tracks and footprints found at the abduction site. However, investigators were unable to confirm an exact match. 
Later in 2015, advancements in DNA testing provided a breakthrough in the case when investigators determined that the unknown male DNA found on Jared Shirel's clothing in 2012 matched hairs belonging to Heinrich, which had been stored as evidence. However, the statute of limitations had lapsed for the kidnapping, preventing Heinrich from being prosecuted for that offense. After a search warrant was issued, child pornography was found in Heinrich's residence, resulting in his arrest on October 28, 2015. It was just six weeks ago when they were first told of the possibility that Danny Heinrich, awaiting trial on child porn charges, might be willing to lead investigator to Jacob's body in exchange for a plea deal. The very next day, the Wetterlings agreed to the deal. Was it a hard decision? No, not really. For nearly 27 years, we've been looking for Jacob. We wanted to know, where's Jacob? Less than 24 hours later, Patty Wetterling got a phone call from the lead prosecutor. It was around noon, I think, when they found Jacob's jacket, which was heartbreaking to me. One thing that nobody will ever know is the intensity of these phone calls to, to call Jerry and tell him it was hard. We later had to call our children and tell them that, that they'd found his jacket. Um, and the, those were grueling phone calls to make. In all of these years, we've never had any piece of evidence to show Jacob was not alive. On September 6, 2016, Heinrich took the stand in court and confessed to the kidnapping and murder of Jacob Wetterling, along with the abduction and sexual assault of Jared Shirel. I don't even know how to describe what it felt like hearing his words. I, when he came into the courtroom, all I could look at him and say is, how could you? It was actually absolutely stunning to try and process. How do you shift your head from, from hoping and searching and to now knowing that um, that he, he wasn't alive and what a horrible death. With Jacob's parents, Patty and Jerry, seated in the front row of the U.S. District Courthouse in Minneapolis, Heinrich, then 53, calmly recounted the chilling details of the crimes. On the night of October 22nd, 1989, Heinrich drove his blue 1982 Ford EXP half an hour from his apartment in Painesville to St. Joseph. Inside his car, he had a scanner for picking up police dispatch and a 38 revolver. Sometime after 8 p.m., Heinrich turned onto the dead-end road leading to the Wetterling house and saw three kids biking toward town. He parked his vehicle on a long gravel driveway across from a cornfield and waited for the boys to return. Upon the boys' return to that spot, Heinrich exited his car, put on a mask, and approached them on the road, ordering them to get into a ditch. One by one, he asked the boys their age and instructed them to run into the forest as fast as they could, cautioning them not to look back and threatening to shoot if they did. While Aaron and Trevor fled, Heinrich grabbed Jacob, handcuffed him, and placed him in the front passenger seat. He then drove Jacob around for some time, long enough to hear police activity on his scanner. He instructed Jacob to lean forward in his seat and duck down until they reached the town of St. Joseph to avoid being seen. 
They continued driving for a considerable period, eventually returning to Heinrich's hometown of Painesville and pulling off onto a roadside near a gravel pit. There he removed Jacob's handcuffs, led him to a row of trees, and instructed the boy to undress while he himself also got undressed. During the assault, Heinrich touched Jacob and told the boy to masturbate in front of him. After 20 long minutes, Jacob told Heinrich that he was cold, so Heinrich allowed him to get dressed. Jacob then asked Heinrich to take him home, but Heinrich replied that he couldn't. As a result, Jacob started crying and Heinrich instructed him to stop. In that instant, a silent patrol car approached down the road with its lights flashing, sending Heinrich into a state of panic. He quickly withdrew his revolver from his pocket, turned his head away, and pulled the trigger aimed at Jacob. Glancing back, Heinrich was surprised to see Jacob still standing, which prompted him to raise a revolver once more and deliver another fatal shot to Jacob's head, sending him collapsing to the ground. He then entered his car, leaving Jacob's body behind as he drove home. After spending a couple of hours at his apartment, he set out on foot with a shovel, walking a little over a mile to where Jacob's body lay. He began digging a hole, but realizing his shovel was too small, he ventured to a nearby construction company and took off with a bobcat. By then, it was sometime after midnight, at least three hours since Jacob had been kidnapped. Using the bobcat, Heinrich dug a grave, placed him inside, and filled it in. He then returned the bobcat and returned to the grave to cover it more with grass and pieces of shrub. Realizing he forgot to bury Jacob's shoes, he walked a few minutes down the road and tossed him into a ravine before returning home. Heinrich recounted that he revisited the crime scene a year later and noticed Jacob's red jacket protruding from the ground with the grave partially exposed. He claimed he gathered the jacket along with Jacob's bones and skull, placing them in a garbage bag and transporting them across the highway. He maintained that he hadn't dug anything himself, asserting it was already uncovered. Using a collapsible spade, Heinrich dug a hole two feet deep, where he placed the bones, covering them with the jacket before concealing the grave. Jacob Wetterling's family confronted his kidnapper and killer in court today, giving emotional, heartfelt testimony. Our Jennifer Merrily was in the courtroom this morning to hear the powerful victim impact statements. Yeah, for 40 minutes, the Wetterlings talked through tears. They spoke of their pain and how the choices Danny Heinrich made on that October night in 1989 led to a lifetime of heartache. Jacob Wetterling's best friend, Aaron Larson, and brother Trevor were just kids the night Danny Heinrich kidnapped, sexually assaulted, and killed Jacob. Aaron Larson said it took him 20 years to come to terms with his guilt, saying, I lived every day thinking I was the monster that night. I was the coward that left my friend. I was the coward that ran away. Trevor felt guilty because he was the one that pushed for the trio to ride their bikes to the store in St. Joseph. Trevor said, from the moment Jacob was taken, molested and murdered, my life was never the same. In September, Heinrich confessed to killing Jacob, and he led the FBI to the boy's remains in this Painesville pasture. He testified that Jacob asked, what did I do wrong in his final moments? To that, Jacob's younger sister Carmen said, I love you, Jacob. This was not your fault, and you didn't do anything wrong. His older sister Amy said, although the gruesome details were devastating, the worst part is that for nearly 27 years, he let us believe that we would someday be able to see Jacob again. 
Jerry Wetterling expressed gratitude to everyone who got them to this point, including Heinrich for showing them where Jacob was. He said, I miss all the things I didn't get to experience. Laugh-filled fishing outings, pride-filled school events. Patty Wetterling relayed the magnitude of pain inflicted on her family, saying, My heart hurts for Jacob and all he went through that night. It keeps me awake at night. To Heinrich, you didn't need to kill him. He did nothing wrong. He just wanted to go home. Heinrich said he is truly sorry for his evil acts. Mr. and Mrs. Wetterling, the heinous acts, the selfishness are unforgivable for what I have taken away from you. I don't know what else to say. I'm so sorry. And Heinrich said the reason he kept the secret for so long was to spare himself and the humiliation he would bring his, to his family. He also apologized to Jared Shirell, who he kidnapped and sexually assaulted in 1989, and to other victims. The Wetterlings made it clear they will no longer think of Heinrich. Patty said they will take Jacob with us, his hopes, his dreams, his smile, his laughter, his sense of fairness, and all that is good that he stands for. Prosecutors say if Heinrich does ever get out, they will move to have him civilly committed. The judge sentenced 53-year-old Danny Heinrich to 20 years in prison for receiving child pornography. After serving his time, Heinrich will be on supervised release and must register as a sex offender. That punishment is part of a plea deal in exchange for confessing and finally leading investigators to Jacob's remains. As part of the plea agreement in which he led authorities to Jacob's body and admitted to abducting, sexually assaulting, and killing the young boy, Heinrich was not charged with Jacob Wetterling's murder or any assaults, including Jared Shirell's. Instead, he pleaded to one count of child pornography and was sentenced to only 20 years in prison. Finally, we know. We know what the Wetterling family and all of Minnesota have longed to know since that awful night in 1989. 27 years is a very long time for an investigation to remain open and active. We are here today because of the perseverance of the investigative team, the commitment to aggressively follow up on every single lead, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant, and the absolute belief that if we continued to press, we would eventually solve this case. We got the truth. The Wetterling family can bring him home. And it's time for all of us to have the closure and the peace that we're hoping can come next. Thank you. Following their son's disappearance, Patty and David Wetterling gained national recognition as child safety advocates. In 1990, they, alongside a small group of friends and supporters, established the Jacob Wetterling Foundation, later renamed the Jacob Wetterling Resource Center to aid in safeguarding children from abduction and sexual exploitation. In 1994, the Federal Jacob Wetterling Act was enacted, marking the first legislation to implement a state sex offender registry. Over time, the law underwent several amendments, most notably with the introduction of Megan's Law in 1996 and the Adam Walsh Child Protection and Safety Act in 2006. As for the future, the Wetterlings say they will continue their work on behalf of child safety and the work of the Jacob Wetterling Resource Center. There's still a lot of work to do and, and we're gaining strength to, to help, but we're just grateful for people who've carried us along the way. We've been gifted to to receive um, it's just so much love and support and it's it's been truly what sustains us. Also shows 
how strong Jacob's spirit is. I mean, that gunshot snuffed his breath out in October 22nd, 89, but his spirit is so strong, you can just see how it affects people. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe, rate the show, and follow me on Instagram at Exhibit May Podcast. 